Hello, and welcome to Golden State Naturalist, a podcast for anyone who's ever tried to take a picture of a butterfly, but then it flew away too fast and you ended up with a picture of the ground. I'm Michelle Fulner, and today I'll be talking with Ralph Washington Jr. about insects and all kinds of little invertebrates. Before you're like, ugh, bugs, gross, and you shut the episode off, stop. Let me tell you a little bit about our conversation because it is 100% worth your time and you'll think it's interesting even if you've never cared about bugs before. This is because Ralph is passionate, hilarious, and brilliant, but also just listen to this list of things we talked about. Cultivating curiosity, an insect that can see above and below the surface of the water at the same time, the limitations of the scientific method, of fire-detecting California native beetle, how racial justice and insects are related, mosquitoes' role in ecosystems, the very unfair bad rap that urban insects get. We talked about bug myths, a very self-compassionate approach to overcoming a fear of insects, how to help native bees, and how caring about things that are different from us helps cultivate empathy. We're going to dig into that conversation in just a minute. But before we do, can you do me a solid? Take a second and think about two people you think would enjoy this podcast. Maybe it's your neighbor who just replaced their lawn with native plants, or your buddy from college who is always backpacking on the weekends, or maybe your entire Facebook hiking group, or the geology subreddit that you follow. Then when you finish this episode, if you liked it, it would help so, so much if you could hit that person or that group up and let them know about the podcast. As a completely independent podcaster, that would mean a lot to me, and you'd get to be the cool friend who found something new right before it got insanely popular. See me manifesting this future? Also, ratings and reviews are the absolute business. They help more people find the podcast. And if you do go to leave a rating or review, double check to make sure that you're subscribed while you're there. That helps a ton too. And if you want even more Golden State Naturalist, you can become a patron for as little as $4 a month. With that membership, you get audio and video extras from my interviews in the field, behind the scenes information about how the podcast is made and what's coming up next and more. There were a couple of really hilarious moments in this episode that I just couldn't fit in because I tried to fit everything in and it became really long. One of those moments is a story about an entomologist who got a tick in a very sensitive location and my conversation with Ralph about all of the bugs I've ever eaten. Those audio extras will go up in the next few days. Some of you who are listening right now helped me reach my first goal on Patreon of $100 a month because you're amazing. The next goal is to cover the cost of making the podcast, which averages out to about $250 a month. If you want to help out with that and gain access to all those cool extras, you can find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash Michelle Fulner. That's Michelle with two L's. Fulner is F-U-L-L-N-E-R. You can also find me on social media at Golden State Naturalist on both Instagram and TikTok. My website is www.goldenstatenaturalist.com. But now let's get to the episode because you shouldn't have to wait any longer to hear from Ralph, who not only has his master's degree in entomology from UC Davis, but who is also a three-time national and international champion of entomological natural history trivia and has his own TED talk called Science, Poverty, and the Human Imagination because he's that cool. Also, I was a little starstruck when I talked to him because I've never talked to anyone with a TED talk before. So without further ado, let's hear from gem of a human, walking encyclopedia, and entomologist extraordinaire, Ralph Washington Jr. on Golden State Naturalist. most well known for having split eyes, like four eyes. Eyes that can look up above the waterline and eyes that look below because they often float at the waterline and swim around on it. What you're hearing here is from my conversation with Ralph when we met up at the Yolo Bypass, which you've seen if you've ever driven between Sacramento and Davis. It's that big wetland right below the causeway. Ralph and I met up there back in April and went down to the water's edge to see what kinds of insects we could find. And just a quick note here that this was my first time recording in a wetland, and I was trying to keep our mic cords from dangling in the water, which caused a few audio issues at the beginning. But I didn't want to cut this section out because Ralph had such good things to say. Just know that the audio quality gets better in a few minutes once we sit down for the full interview. Anyway, the insect Ralph is describing here is one you may have seen before. It's a water beetle from the Gyrinidae family, usually known as a whirligig beetle because of the way it glides around and around in circles in the water. 
and it needs those unusual eyes split top and bottom because a lot of things want to eat it. So they'll dive in response to if something bothers them. The technical term is molestation by predators. You know, Do what, what eats them? Is it birds? Is it frogs? Is it everybody? Frogs might. Yeah, mm. birds probably wouldn't because they're generally pretty small. Uh-huh. It's uh, often other aquatic insects as well. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, they have to worry about that. There are a lot of aquatic predators. So the thing sometimes I like to do, I find really peaceful when coming to an aquatic environment that's full of insects. So I like to sit real close instead of taking a tool and dipping in, which you know someone might do if they were a stream ecologist or even like a pond ecologist. I can find it a lot more satisfying just to observe, and then if I want to try and catch something, even use my hands. Mm-hmm. I like to think about what it must have been like for people who expressed their curiosity before the advent of the scientific method. Right. You know, there are all kinds of systems of knowledge in the world and in history. And despite the utility that science provides for calibrating our critical thinking and helping us avoid various cognitive biases, it's often associated with a certain kind of cultural outlook mm-hmm. and emotional association with the subjects of our interest that can prevent us from really indulging the curiosity as genuinely as we might. Make no mistake, Ralph is a big fan of science. He's not saying that scientific thinking is bad, but it does seem that sometimes all of the trappings that can sometimes go with it can get us stuck in a mindset that takes all of the genuine joy, enthusiasm, curiosity, and love out of the thing we're studying. As he was saying this, Ralph had a hand cupped in the water waiting patiently for an insect to pass. He exhibits such a sense of calm here, such stillness and presence, that I found myself matching his tone, slowing down, and letting the world around open up right in front of us. We stayed this way for a while, noticing things, taking it in, and Ralph shared both knowledge and insight as we crouched beside the water. So in water like this, you often find a lot of insects that either live on the surface or they breathe through a plastron. You know what a plastron is? Is it like a, a tube? It's a, it's, it can be a tube. What it is, is it's a series of hairs, any hydrophobic interface mm-hmm. that allows the insect to um, keep a bubble of air around their body mm-hmm. when they're in the water. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of aquatic beetles will have hydrophobic hairs on their abdomen. That's how they do that. Yes, I've seen trap. the bubble. Exactly. Yeah. That's called a plastron. That's cool because I was I was literally thinking the other day in the vernal pools episode. Oh yeah. The naturalist talks about yeah, wonderful. the uh, the aquatic invertebrates in Fantastic. there. Fantastic. And there's one with a plastron that yeah. he talks about. And um, is it the back swimmer? No, is it the boatman? The water boatman? Water boatman and back swimmers. They both have them. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I remember I was just sitting there thinking, like, it's probably the stupidest question, but I was like, why can't I do that? <laughs> like, why can't I go oh, in the water and have, have a bubble? A scuba tank but now you've explained it. You've explained it. That well, makes you could sense. set it up. I mean, people have done oh. some research to try and see how they can make that happen. Wow. Right? But the thing is, you need to have some means by which you can extract air from the bubble. Right, sure. And so the plastrons are always oriented over a spiracle. Mm-hmm. So spiracles are the apertures and the tracheoles, the breathing tubes of mm-hmm. insects. And so it's a connected system wherein you have the hydrophobic hairs which keep a bubble of air above a spiracle so that periodically an insect can open their spiracle, their spiracle and in, inhale some air. Uh-huh. And then the bubble will gradually shrink. Oh my goodness. That is wild. So they have to just go back up to the surface every once in a while exactly. and refresh their little air bubble? Mm-hmm. So another creature from the Vernal Pools episode, which you might remember if you had a chance to listen to that one, is mosquito larvae. And those guys breathe through a little tube that's on their backside and it sticks up to the surface of the water. Ralph's going to explain a little bit more about how that works. And the tube is connected to the surface. So their hair is that close automatically as they come down and prevent water from going inside of the tube. Uh And they spread out as they reach the surface and penetrate to the surface of the brain in the water. This is why mosquitoes are so successful. Mosquitoes are great. <laughs> I think a lot of people don't appreciate the interesting aspects of their biology. Mm. We're often so focused on how they beleaguer us, how they annoy us. Mm-hmm. At least in this country, right? Mm-hmm. Although malaria and yellow fever and many other mosquito-borne diseases were really prominent in the past, and there still are some to a certain extent, mm-hmm. right? West Nile virus, Eastern equine encephalitis, St. Louis encephalitis. 
they aren't the same public health concern as they were before. Mm -hmm. And so for the most part, people are, are irritated by insects. Right, like sure. They're annoyed, or mm -hmm. irritated by mosquitoes, they're annoyed by them. We don't have to deal with the same problems as someone living in sub-Saharan Africa, for sure. example. Yeah. The problem I have, though, is that uh, it's kind of a an anthropocentric perspective on a really interesting creature. We think they're pests. I mean, pests is a subjective designation, right? Mm. We're so used to killing them, swatting them, and destroying them when we see them that we don't take time to appreciate the interesting things about them. Mm -hmm. There are mosquitoes that don't feed on blood at all. Hmm. Only feed on flowers. I mean, all mosquitoes feed on flowers. Right? Both males and females feed on either hmm. flowers or extrafloral nectaries because they need sugar in addition to blood. And it's only females that feed on blood to mm -hmm. produce brood. But there are some that never feed on blood at all. They all feed on microbes. Hmm. And they regulate the diversity of microbes that are present in these hmm. environments. The larvae do? Yeah, the larvae do. Yeah, they're often the most important determinant of what microbial diversity you find in certain aquatic mm -hmm. environments. And the reason why that's important ecologically is most global nutrient cycling happens through microbes. Hmm. So mosquitoes play an important part in making sure that carbon, nitrogen, and phosphorus is transmitted around the globe and the ratios that are needed for all life. And we ignore them because they might be brown and drab and we don't like their sound. And they bite us sometimes. So dismissive of them. Exactly. transient irritations. Thanks for making it through the audio issues on that. We're almost through the problems with audio, but I wanted to keep that in there because I've actually heard before that mosquitoes don't really matter or don't really play an important role in the ecosystem. And I think it's really interesting because if something exists in an ecosystem naturally, it probably has an important role to play there. And just because we don't necessarily know what that role is, it doesn't mean that that role isn't being played anyway. So this was a great reminder to have respect for every living creature around us because we don't always know everything that they do and all of the ways that they contribute. I think people think of plants just getting nutrients from the soil, you know, yeah. not necessarily thinking about how those nutrients get there. Exactly. What the building blocks are for that. Yeah, who's involved? I think for a lot of people, if they had it their way, only butterflies would exist. <laughs> well, maybe ladybugs too. And maybe ladybugs, ladybugs yeah. yeah. And all other insects will be dead. Gone. Forgotten. It's too bad. There's so many cool insects out there. Mm -hmm. They're inspiring, beautiful, entertaining, confusing. My favorite thing about insects is that they provide so many opportunities to reflect on the things that matter to us. One of my favorite things about talking to Ralph was that he knew his facts. He had the data, but he didn't stop there. He also extrapolated and thought about the meaning of things. And he goes a little bit more into that concept here. There are about a million identified species of insects wow. and most you know, estimates in the past were sometimes like 50, 60 million. Wow. More conservative estimates are something like five or six million. If you think about the number, how much time people have put into finding and identifying insects at this point, if there are five times as many right. that still haven't been identified, that's an incredible amount of diversity. Mm -hmm. And some people think entomology is like stamp collecting, right? Mm -hmm. It's just a, a rote task you perform without actually thinking about it. And, you know, we don't reach these organic syntheses of insight without putting the pieces together in the first place. Mm -hmm can't build a building without getting a bunch of bricks together. Mm -hmm. So There's so many bricks. There's so many bricks. What kind of building do you want to build? But the bricks aren't the end. That's right, exactly. The bricks aren't the end. The building is the end. I think that's what we should be thinking about when we consider nature. I was tempted at first to compare this idea to collecting the pieces of a massive puzzle and finally putting them all together and stepping back to see the big picture. But then I realized that that metaphor isn't correct because it suggests a single correct way to put all of the pieces together. What Ralph says about bricks is much better. We gain all of these blocks of information, of data, of observable fact, and we can endlessly rearrange them to glean new insights and find new meaning. And as we rearrange, we learn more 
more about what arrangements make the most sense and show us the greatest truths. I love that Ralph takes something like insects that most of us dismiss and sees their profound importance. We're going to get more into what makes insects so important, why they're vital to each of our existence when we sit down for the full interview. You're also going to see why I said Ralph is hilarious in the intro. That's coming up right after a short break. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, onto the full interview. What's Go the ahead. technical definition of entomology? Being awesome. You just have to own that. Yeah, that's right, you know? exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, sometimes we try and talk about insects in nightclubs. That's how it, does that go? It, it can go well, depending yeah. on how you say it, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Depending on what right you angle. bring up. Yeah, yeah for sure. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. That makes you sense. You know? If I go in there with the net, right? Yeah. And I think if, if my what I'm suggesting is um, I'm too excited about it, you know? You gotta be cool about You gotta it. get the right vibe, right? <laughs> You gotta you wait go and see what people are going on. Do you leave the waiters? Exactly, <laughs> right? You gotta dress for the occasion. Just the part. And you oftentimes <laughs> want to ask what people are interested in. Right. If they have a butterfly on them, ask them about butterflies. Right, sure, yeah. Then you can talk about butterflies. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. I mean, if you go in there and be like, hey, I learned about this incredibly cool beetle. You wanna know about it? People They're are. probably like, why? You're Who like, are do you? Do you want to know about cockroaches? They're That's like, right. uh-uh. Yeah, people, my God. I'm going to talk about cockroaches in oh, a minute. Oh, I'm but, so excited about this. But, yeah. I'm very curious about cockroaches. Oh, okay. I, yes. well, we'll leave that for now. Okay. You didn't think you were going to get free dating advice here on Golden State Naturalist today, did you? But that's just the kind of value that's offered here. Anyways, how did Ralph first become interested in insects? I was a little kid in a neighborhood called Oak Park in mm-hmm. Sacramento. And neighborhoods like that are pretty neglected in terms of certain opportunities for natural experiences, Mm -hmm. right? Whether as a consequence of class or proximity, Mm -hmm. often the case is if you grow up in economically challenged urban circumstances, then you can't really see a lot of nature, Mm -hmm. at least in the the kind you see National Geographic talking about. Mm -hmm. Okay, I know you came here for nature and not history, but if you're not from Sacramento or if you're just not familiar with this story, you might need a little bit more context to understand the neighborhood where Ralph grew up. So I found this PDF by the city of Sacramento. I'll link it in the show notes, but it gives a good overview of the history of this region, which used to be a middle-class neighborhood before World War II and the Great Depression. I'm just going to read you a section of this. After the Depression and World War II, many of Oak Park middle-class families and businesses relocated to automobile suburbs farther from the city center. The migration of middle-class residents opened the door to African-American residents, who were being pushed out of their previous homes in the West End by redevelopment projects and prohibited from settling in other neighborhoods by discriminatory housing covenants, so basically redlining. As a result, Oak Park developed a new cultural identity as an African-American neighborhood. It goes on to say the end of streetcar service in 1946, combined with the reconstruction of U.S. Highway 50 and Highway 99 in the 50s and 60s cut Oak Park off from the rest of the city and exacerbated growing social issues caused by increasing levels of poverty. In 1968, the state fair relocated to its current location at Cal Expo, removing another major economic driver from the area. Social tensions erupted in confrontations between local residents and the police, first in 1969, Oak Park riots, and again in 1970 after the shooting of a police officer resulted in the arrest of four Black Panther Party members. After the riots, several of Oak Park's long-standing businesses, including Steen's Bar and Clarence Azevedo's clothing store closed down and never reopened. Meanwhile, urban renewal projects led to the demolition of most of Oak Park's historic business district along 35th Street. By the 1990s, when Ralph was a kid, Oak Park was known for higher crime rates and economic depression. Just a note that this is not a complete history of Oak Park, so definitely check it out if you're interested to learn more. 
I bring all this up not only because it's relevant to Ralph's story, but also because I think it illustrates a wider issue and demonstrates a lack of access to the outdoors and nature experienced by many kids in similar circumstances across the country. I did have some cool experiences later on, people taking me hiking and stuff like that. Oh, that's cool. But initially, I kind of felt as though, what is there out there for me to see? Mm-hmm. Uh, I found insects in a vacant lot. So mm-hmm. I, I still have a soft spot, a penchant for urban ecology because there are many vacant lots in all kinds of places. And in neighborhoods like Oak Park in particular, in neglected environments, that's where you find a lot of lots mm-hmm. that remain vacant for a while. And then weeds will grow up. And what are weeds other than plants we don't like? Mm-hmm. And when you find a lot that isn't disturbed by human activity other than, like, you know, some furniture or appliances that people drop there, mm-hmm. you can find a lot of insects. Yeah. It's really amazing. I found insects in a context where I, I, I think I was unconsciously desperate for something to distract me from mm. some of the circumstances. Mm-hmm. And I was also curious. I was a curious child Mm -hmm. since I was very little, as most children are. Mm -hmm. And I was really fortunate that I found something to stimulate my curiosity, and I Mm -hmm. stuck with it. Yeah. How old were you when you would explore these vacant lots? Eight. I was eight when I first found them. And I thought to myself, well, these are amazing creatures. Mm -hmm. Why not pursue them more? So did you just kind of like flip things over and look at them? Yeah, I mean, I think I was, let's be honest, you think about things in retrospect and your childhood behaviors are more noble or directed than they probably were. Right. Right. In reality, I was probably running around the lot with my brothers because it was something to do. Right. And we were squatting on the ground and looking in an old refrigerator. Mm -hmm. And I was like, whoa, what's that? And it was probably a cricket. And I was Mm -hmm. looking this up. And my grandmother asked me what I was doing one day a few months after that and I was like hey I was looking at these insects and she bought me a bug bottle and brought me a tomato oh, hornworm yeah and I raised it into a cool moth grandma and, oh yeah, my gosh yeah it was really wonderful that's it's my great. mother's grandma yeah helps my to mother's have mother a, I mean okay okay yeah helps to have an adult who can kindle your curiosity yeah indeed yeah. I agree not to I, be alone on that absolutely mm-hmm. I think it's really important yeah for sure I think that children can be incredibly resourceful mm-hmm. in exploring their own curiosity mm-hmm. however with the support of knowledgeable conscientious adults mm-hmm. children can have more meaningful experiences mm-hmm. and their lives can change in profound ways so I think it it underscores the fact that it doesn't really matter what you do for kids as long as you pay attention to them and you indulge their interests. Mm-hmm. So we often become obsessed as adults with providing a, a plethora of opportunities mm-hmm. for kids that are really meaningful culturally or that are challenging to acquire. Mm-hmm. And the truth is you can grow up pretty well and you can learn to be a good thinker if you have somebody that pays attention to you and encourages you mm-hmm. to explore the things that you enjoy. I, for one, am super grateful that Ralph had somebody to encourage him in his curiosity. Otherwise, he might never have developed and pursued that curiosity, and he might not be out there communicating all of this cool stuff about insects to all of us. But this conversation made me think that we also need a full episode on access to the outdoors. What do you think? Okay, but for now, let's get back to insects. I think we need to talk about a, a definition for entomology. Okay. I'm wondering, mm-hmm. like, does it include just insects or like mm-hmm. arachnids? Like, how did what does it include? What does entomology kind of encompass? Well, technically, it refers to the study of insects. Okay. Entomon is the word for insect. Mm-hmm. Logia, the study of, right, mm-hmm. or science of. So, you guys, he gave an etymology of entomology. That just made my day. Entomology is technically, specifically, just the study of the species and the class insecta. Mm-hmm. However, oftentimes. Functionally, entomologists either are interested in or required to know about most terrestrial arthropods. Mm. So that includes the other non-insect hexapods, the colimbola, the protura, and the diplura. That includes millipedes and centipedes, mm-hmm. spiders, includes sometimes even the onycophora, right? the velvet worms are these interesting soft-bodied, mm. moist uh, predators mm. that secrete a paralytic, toxic sticky substance you find them in rainforests oh cool yeah they're interesting mm-hmm. but 
so most most terrestrial arthropods, mm-hmm. including isopods, right, which are just you know terrestrial crustaceans, you find you find so bugs and pill bugs, yeah. and many other arthropods like that. Entomologists need to know about the key term to catch out of all of that is arthropod. And if you don't know what an arthropod is, that's okay. Oxford Languages says that an arthropod is an invertebrate animal of the large phylum Arthropoda, such as an insect, spider, or crustacean. And the Smithsonian Institute has this charming two and a half minute long video about arthropods and says that they include insects, arachnids, crustaceans, millipedes, and centipedes. And if you're like, hold on, centipedes and millipedes aren't insects? No, and that's because insects technically have six legs and often one or two pairs of wings, whereas centipedes and millipedes have bunches and bunches of legs. A lot of people like bigger animals or vertebrates, like you said. They like either the reptiles or the mammals Mm -hmm. or the birds. So when that happens, why should those people who care about these bigger animals, why should they care about insects? Mm, Yeah. Well, I often think about it this way. We notice the things that are really big, and we pay attention to things that are easy to see. Mm. Yet the big things often disguise things that have an outsized influence Mm. on the environment Mm -hmm. and might, might really matter to us. There's a lot of research that goes into studying vertebrates because we're so closely related to them. Mm-hmm. And we like how they look, and they're fluffy, and they have eyes, and it seems like they have traits and experiences that are analogous to human experiences. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, technically, even if dogs, bears, even other primates do have emotions like ours. They're only like ours. They are not ours. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's erroneous to suggest that they're truly the same. Mm -hmm. We can empathize with them, but we are anthropomorphizing them. Mm -hmm. If we suggest that, say, for a dog, when it yelps in pain, right, it's experiencing anguish, human anguish. Mm -hmm. It's not. It might be experiencing the dog analog of anguish. Mm -hmm. That's fine, and that can be valid, and it's important for us to care about them. But it's not the same. And so as a consequence, it's important to orient your mind to appreciate the experiences of creatures as necessarily different than your own. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes we're looking for things that allow us to treat them like they're people. The issue there is we limit our empathy to things that are like people. I think the more we are obsessed with relating to creatures that seem as close as possible to human beings, the less we're willing to go out on a limb to relate to things that aren't human, mm-hmm. are distinctly inhuman, are mm-hmm. far away from human. And I think that also influences how we treat other people. Mm-hmm. So the, the real reason why I think that people should appreciate insects is that they're creatures that seem so alien to us, yet they live around us all the time and they heavily influence everything that happens for us in the world. The food we have access to, where we live, the structure of our homes, the kinds of clothes we wear, how things disintegrate, whether or not there's carrying in our environment. There's so many things and yeah. the sounds we hear at night that can be so pleasant and evoke memories of our childhood in the southeastern countryside. Whatever it is, insects contribute to our sensory experience mm-hmm. and our the meaningful economic experiences we have as people in this global environment. We don't care about them. And the more we practice empathy for other creatures, the more inclined we are to practice empathy for people that are unlike us. Mm-hmm. So that's that's really why I think that people should care about insects, because if they do, they might care about each other more. I like that. You touched a little bit on all of the roles that insects play, oh, yeah. too. I mean, and this is maybe way too huge of a question. We'll see. But I just wanted to hear about some of the roles that insects play in mm. ecosystems. Maybe, okay. like, maybe like what are some of the most common roles that they play in ecosystems? Mm-hmm. So everyone talks about pollination services provided Mm -hmm. by insects. Mm -hmm. Huge number of crops are pollinated by insects. There are also lots of plants that we don't eat that are pollinated Mm -hmm. by insects, have these important relationships with insects. Uh, Insects live in the soil, Mm -hmm. and so they're very important contributors to the processing of debris and the nutrients that go into a soil that keep it sturdy, or not sturdy, keep it healthy, Mm -hmm. keep it fertile, and useful to the plants around. 
they structure it physically. Mm -hmm. So insects provide a number of different ecosystem services, mm -hmm. and I want to use the, the technical term. So some of them will alter environment so that it is more suitable for other species. Mm -hmm. Some of them will move nutrients around, mm -hmm. contribute to nutrient cycling. Some of them will function by providing food to other species. Some of them will control the populations of other organisms such that the diversity in an environment uh, is sufficient for to meet a certain standard. So if we think about diversity in an environment, that can be represented by the abundance or the species count, right? It can be, you know, we can think of it in terms of the number of species that are present or the relative number within each species. Okay. And that'll be influenced by what in individuals are present, what species are present, right? Mm -hmm. So insects are contributing to all of that. Depending upon the environment, they might have a larger or smaller influence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what, uh, things that insects provide that we find useful, mm -hmm. right? Insects provide silk, they provide honey, beeswax. Insects, I mentioned sounds, artistic motifs. They're inspiring in that mm -hmm. way. Well, people have been basing like building designs off of, of yeah. insect creations, right? That's right, like, yeah. 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 And I mean like with robotics, uh, a number yeah. of other novel materials mm -hmm. or new devices through biomimesis, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Harvester ants collecting seeds mm -hmm. off the floor, germinating in a, uh, a warm environment in the soil, mm -hmm. then distributing them elsewhere because the seeds have germinated. And so that can be helpful. A lot of those insects live far away from high-density human population centers. But my listener Mo was curious about urban insects and wanted to know Ralph's thoughts about them. So there was a study that came out about the participation of ants and cockroaches in dealing with urban debris in New York City. Mm -hmm. Because we often think that, hey, this is annoying. We don't want the insects around, right? In many urban environments, including in Sacramento, right? Mm -hmm. But New York City is a, a potent example, and so that's why the study was performed there. They were evaluating how much debris the ants and the cockroaches mm -hmm. clean up on the streets. Yeah. And it's a considerable amount. Really? Yeah, so it's an analogous function to insects in a forest or a natural environment might be cleaning up the carrion, right? Because mm -hmm. there's tons of animals that are dying all the time, mm -hmm. right? Otherwise, it'd be all over the place. Right. They also clean up feces, right? Mm -hmm. There's tons of feces produced by animals sure, we're not yeah. seeing. So the world would be smelly and full of de un un or decom slowly decomposing corpses if we didn't have insects to deal with mm -hmm. them, right? So we can be grateful in that regard. Right. But yeah, in, in an urban environment, people are dropping crap. Yeah. All the time. Their hot dog. Yes. Whatever. <laughs> this, here, or there. And the insects often consume it. So the funny thing is, that's a less appreciated contribution. Mm -hmm. And it points to an aspect of their inclinations that leads to a misunderstanding a mm -hmm. bit mm -hmm. about their biology and what they want. Like, so when we see ants in our house, we see cockroaches in our house, people are often annoyed, right? Mm -hmm. They're like, why are they coming? I hate this, right? I gotta get rid of them. I wanna put a bunch of poison down. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I wanna kill all of them. I'm so upset. It's likely that if there are ants and cockroaches in your house, you have left crumbs around that they mm -hmm. want to eat. And you're probably not going to eat those crumbs. So if you drop some cookies behind the counter, are you going to eat the cookies? No, eat no you're probably not going to clean up the cookies either, right? Like nobody <laughs> goes behind the counter to clean yeah. up the cookies or crackers. But the cockroaches will grab on the cookies. Why mm -hmm. not, right? You're not going to eat them. You're mm -hmm. not going to clean it. So what's the problem? Mm -hmm. You just don't like seeing them. And Well, and there's a stigma. Yes. I think that ultimately a lot of it comes back to a stigma, right? Like yeah. people think you're dirty yes, that's if right. there's cockroaches or whatever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I find it quite unfortunate because cockroaches are very clean. There are no cockroaches that spread disease. There are a few demonstrated cases of one cockroach species, the Turkestan cockroach, spreading the bacterium that causes dysentery. Mm -hmm. But that's it. Mm -hmm. Cockroaches are often meticulously clean. Wow. If you if you notice, many cockroaches after you handle them, they'll clean themselves off. Really? Because, yeah, we got hand, we got they're oils like, all over us. They're like, you touched me. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right. Oh, that's yeah. ironic. Cockroaches are clean their antennae yeah. and their legs yeah. and things like that, right? And they don't. Back, I mean, like, if if you are eating a sandwich in a dirty bathroom mm -hmm. and you're holding the sandwich on the ground and the cockroach claw crawls off the toilet onto your sandwich and then you immediately eat the sandwich then you're probably going to get sick as a consequence of a cockroach mechanically vectoring some right. bacterium from the toilet. Right. But otherwise, it's extremely unlikely mm -hmm. that cockroaches will cause any problem for you. Mm -hmm. They also don't track dirt into your house, right? That's not happening. If they're there, they're there as a consequence of something that you've left behind because mm -hmm. they like to eat similar things to us. They have a very robust organ in there. So the fat body is their organ of detoxification and, and immunity. 
it's really robust in cockroaches and it helps them digest many things and deal with a lot of compounds. Yeah. It also allows them to store nitrogen so oh. for times of nutrient scarcity. Uh -huh. So many times cockroaches will store their urine. Right, they'll store the insects produce uric acid. Mm -hmm. Right, the most terrestrial insects will excrete their nitrogenous waste as uric acid, mm -hmm. as opposed to ammonia for mainly aquatic insects. Mm -hmm. But uh, the uric acid crystals will store it up in their fat body mm -hmm. in uranocytes, uh, specialized cells to store the, the uric acid. And then when they don't have enough protein and enough nitrogen, they'll just metabolize the uric acid. Oh my gosh! Yeah, it's incredible. Genius. Yeah, I know, right? Like, There's so many things. Like, why can't we do that? That's why cool. can't we do that? I mean, I want to store my pee for three yeah. months. Right? <laughs> That'd be Come way on. more convenient. It'd be better for car rides. Find a bathroom all the yeah. time. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, exactly. Especially, hey, would, you know, enough protein. Make, why not? Yeah, it would mm -hmm. make San Francisco day trips a lot more. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Where am I gonna Especially pee? with kids. Yes. You can hold it for at least two weeks. Okay. I know yes. this. <laughs> You should have gone before we left the city. Yeah. Oh, my God. You know, you talked yes. about stigma, and I really think that's it. There's a, a misplaced association between filth mm -hmm. and certain creatures. And I find it really unfortunate, especially because most people interact with maybe five or ten species of cockroaches. Mm -hmm. And there are, what, like 5,000 wow. in the world? Wow. Especially if you're counting termites, which are just derived cockroaches. I was just going to say, aren't they related? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're just specialized cockroaches. But, um, yeah, if you think about that, right, that's that's so few. With cockroaches, that's the other thing I wanted to say about them is that they, we interact with such a small percentage of all the cockroach diversity mm -hmm. in the world. And our negative sentiments about them are so heavily influenced by that. Right. And that... It seems to me a lot like how we stereotype other people. Mm -hmm. And we consider that to be completely objectionable. Mm -hmm. So why is it okay to act this way towards these creatures that are around us all the time? Right. Yeah. But then it's, it's we make it palatable to stereotype other people by putting it on the bug. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's definitely reinforced. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think, yeah, I, I'm not sure if Golden State Naturalist is going to be a podcast about racial dynamics as well, but I definitely think there's an association there. Certain pests are more heavily prominent mm -hmm. in racially or economically um, uh, oppressed contexts. Mm -hmm. And that association has led to people disliking them a lot as well. So, mm -hmm. like you see rats and cockroaches. There's, um, there's an entomologist. She wrote a book called Pests in the City mm. about the Don Beeler. Yeah. So this is a, a book about the disproportionate burden of pests experienced by people in neglected urban environments. Wow, yeah. And so a lot of that can be a public health crisis, in mm -hmm. particular like because asthma, the rates of asthma are much higher among black people. And so cockroach dander, mm -hmm. pieces of debris, right, their, their exuvia, their, their frass can irritate people's respiratory passages. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, you have higher rates of asthma among black people, and then you have more black people living in impoverished urban circumstances where there are more cockroaches. So it means that they're experiencing more severe symptoms as a consequence. So, yeah. Uh, Pest in the sure City is a good like, book. Wow, yeah. I'm sure that the car exhaust and all that kind of stuff in urban environments is yes, not helping either. Yes, you're right. Yeah, yeah definitely sure. contributes. So it gets a little bit off the topic of insects, but if you're curious about that topic, go and watch the TED Talk. Climate justice can't happen without racial justice. It's only 10 minutes long. It's by David Lammy. Definitely go check it out. One of the things that he discusses in the talk is how Black Americans experience and breathe in more pollution than they produce, whereas white Americans breathe in less pollution than they produce. I wanted to bring it to specifically California mm -hmm. and thinking about how we have this Mediterranean climate here. Ooh, yeah. like, that's got to impact what kind of insects we find here, right? Yeah, like, totally. What's the impact there? Mm, you want to know about a really cool insect you yeah. can find? Yeah. So there's a, the Buprestidae are the metallic wood boring beetles. Uh -huh. This particular species is not metallic or okay. generally metallic as an adult. It's often called the black fire beetle. And the reason why is they have abdominal organs that allow them to sense fire. They kind of hear fire. So the way it works is they have these fluid filled vesicles that are sensitive to infrared radiation. Uh -huh. And so just infrared or heat, right, will cause fluid to expand, cause the fluid uh -huh. in the vesicle to expand. And when it expands, it triggers a nerve impulse. It touches the syncytium and then they get a nerve impulse, right? And it's kind of like insect hearing. And so oh. it's analogous to them hearing fire. The interesting thing about it is that some of them are so sensitive that they can hear fire 60 kilometers away. Wow. Yeah, so they'll detect the infrared radiation. What they're detecting or orienting to is recent fires. Uh -huh. So because they lay their eggs in, their larvae feed on dying insects and debris 
that are left around after a fire has oh, occurred. So they so, need it. So they need it. It's an, it's an important part of their life cycle. And so they need to hear these fires. Well, they are so sensitive to the... They're so keen at detecting the mm -hmm. presence of these fires or the residual infrared radiation from mm -hmm. a fire that has just died that sometimes they're able to detect the presence of a fire that is indetectable to our most sensitive infrared detection equipment. Wow. So sometimes, yeah, we might be monitoring an environment yeah. and we're not capable of recognizing. And that's just, of course, a consequence of where the technology is right now, not right. necessarily. It's just, it's amazing to me mm -hmm. that this beetle is so keenly adapted sure. to perceiving infrared radiation at that distance at such a low intensity that to us, it just seems indistinguishable from background radiation. Wow. Yeah, it's incredible. That is know? super cool. And yeah. I think that you know, knowing kind of the fire history of California, yeah. right? And how now we have these mega fires, but yeah. previously before intervention from the forest practices that we have now, yes. previously there were so many smaller fires, right? Yeah. A lot of these smaller fires were either just allowed to burn from lightning strikes and things like that because no one was suppressing fire on the landscape, or they were controlled burns that were lit by California native people in a very intentional way to get specific desired results from the landscape. And so right. these insects would have been really well adapted to those kinds of forest mm -hmm. environments. That's really cool. Yeah. That's really cool. So we see that, right? Mm -hmm. They're also really like wet, lush environments. Yeah, and because sometimes rains are so infrequent in California, you see members of a family Pleocomidae, these little beetles, scare relatives, mm -hmm. that are known as rain beetles uh -huh. because they emerge to mate in response to seasonal rains. Huh. And some populations are so, or respond to such specific cues that they only emerge a single day a year. So we're in this climate where the rains are relatively infrequent. Mm -hmm. And we have beetles that only come out when it rains in a single rainstorm every year. And they all just know. Like, mm -hmm. they're taking the same cues. Yeah. And so they, they find each it's other. It's incredible. I mean, there's differences in humidity, yeah. right? And there's differences in, in pressure. Mm -hmm. And they're responding to those things. And they all emerge from the ground. Mm -hmm. yep, and, and is that, like, eggs. throughout the state or different different areas? Certain places in Certain the state. Places. Yeah, I don't think you're going to find them in San Diego. You usually okay. find them up in the northern forests. Okay. There's a forest preserve where I found them the first time mm. on a field class. Did they emerge? You saw them emerging? Yes. Wow, that's yeah, like a we lucky really, thing. We were really lucky. That is yeah. very cool. So you can find some in Southern California, but I don't okay. think they find, you know, you find them. Yeah, there's more northern, okay. generally in the mountains. Do we have many endemic insects here? Yeah, we do. We have a lot of endemic insects. I'm trying to remember what the count was last time. So California has the greatest number of insects of any state in the really? country. Yeah. yeah, because of, you know, all the, the, um, the different geographic regions. Mm -hmm. Uh, different biological zones. According to the Critical Ecosystem Partnership Fund, California is home to an estimated 28,000 species of insects, about 32% of which are endemic. These species represent about 30% of all known insects in the United States and Canada. And I mentioned this when talking about native plants with Shalico a couple of episodes ago, but endemic means only found in a particular area. So those endemic insects are only in California. Do you have a favorite California native or endemic insect? Ooh, hmm. Okay, cool, yeah. So uh, there's a genus, Metriochnomus. So Metriochnomus edwardsi is a midge. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so a non-biting midge, the mm -hmm. family Chironomidae. And it lives in Darlingtonia, Californica, the California pitcher plant. This plant is beautiful. It's a carnivorous plant and it's found in certain parts of Northern California and Oregon. And it's also called a cobra plant sometimes because it actually looks like the rearing up head of a cobra complete with forked tongue. Definitely recommend Googling a picture of this thing. Yeah, so I very much enjoy learning about insects that live in Phytotelmata, pools of water collected by mm -hmm. plants or plant containers, right? Uh -huh. So have you ever been to a bog or a fin in Northern California, Northeastern no. California? Okay, so there's a... 
There's a native pitcher plant called Dogtonia in California. Mm-hmm. It's a little tiny pitcher plant that comes mm-hmm. up and it's curved, right? Uh, and it lives in, in fins. Fins, a bo- difference, main difference between a bog and a fin is that uh, a fin has slow moving water going through it and it's oh. usually alpine. So it's okay, usually like okay. snow melt. Uh-huh. So it's typically cooler water okay. going through, right? So a, a fin might feel kind of like a marsh and a bog might be a little more sessile, right? And it's usually not on the slope. Okay. But the difference is kind of challenging to tell, especially mm-hmm. when you're when you're seeing it up close. Uh-huh. But anyway, there are many fins in California where you can find some Darlingtonia in California because uh-huh. it's uh-huh. a unique endemic plant. Yeah. And inside of that plant is a little midge, Metriochromus edwards eye. Uh-huh. So I, I think it's really interesting whenever insects are living within the digestive fluid secreted by another creature yeah. that aids them in their... And, it, and, and it's not body. digesting them. Nope. So do they have, do they need that plant to live? Is that like part of their that, life cycle? Yeah, it's their obligate inquiline. And inquiline is like a living inside of the nest or the structure inside of a plant. So yeah, that's that's their entire habitat is wow. living in this pitcher plant. So, so if that pitcher plant is gone, that insect is gone. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. Okay, so that plant and that insect are ones that we want to stay. But what about ones that we want to leave, like from our garden? What should we do about them? So uh, most of the things that people are dealing with in the garden can be dealt with through soapy water. Mm. A lot of people complain about aphids. Aphids have a very thin cuticle, and a lot of insects are super vulnerable to degradation of the wax layer on their cuticle Mm -hmm. because it leads to them dehydrating. If you spray soapy water on them, it's probably not going to harm the plants, and it's definitely going to harm the insects. So if you really want to kill all the insects, soapy water can help. Mm -hmm. Generally, I think that people make a much bigger deal out of the insects being Mm -hmm. present than they need to. Right. right, they'll see one caterpillar and are really upset. Tomato hornworms can eat your entire tomato crop. Mm-hmm. It makes sense that you're worried about that. Mm-hmm. Not all insects are going to completely destroy everything you mm-hmm. have there. So mm-hmm. sometimes it's fine if you pick them or you leave them alone. Right. If you really need to tend to them, yeah, there are means of doing it. You don't have to use chemicals. Right. If you really want to, some of them are pretty safe. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, the truth is that uh, despite a lot of concerns about general problems associated with ingestion of chemicals, the regulations that are in place Mm -hmm. to control the toxicity of the pesticides that we're allowed to use, Mm -hmm. especially in a home context, the quantity of them, especially people using it based on a label, those regulations are robust. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We are not out there willy-nilly, wild west, just shooting whatever we want into the soil. It's not the DDT days anymore. It's not the case. (laughs) It's not the case. Um, Those rules, those guidelines are informed by a lot of careful entomology Mm -hmm. and toxicology. And that's why it's always really important to pay attention to the instruction manuals and any device you're using. Mm -hmm. It's particularly important to pay attention to the guidelines on the use of a pesticide mm-hmm. and also because we're in california and there's the land-grant institutions there's uc agricultural natural resources mm-hmm. there's cooperative extension there are lots of people that people can talk to and ask for advice right there's a whole pest management yes. system there's yeah. master gardeners right there's entomologists so we, yeah. and entomophiles out there you can tell you what you need sure. to know in order to be careful yeah. so there are a lot of options mm-hmm. in which you can avoid introducing something dangerous in the soil and your environment. Also, they might suggest a means by which you can deal with your problem mm-hmm. without you having to go to Home Depot and buying a jug of a chemical. Right. So, yeah, I'd say that when people see an insect that they don't like, the first thing I suggest is, I want you to think about why you don't like it, and then mm-hmm. think if it's really a big deal. Then mm-hmm. if you've decided that, okay, you need to abhor this insect, you need to get rid of it, I bet there are a bunch of options available that don't require you to effectively slash and burn. Right. Yeah, I think... There's a, a lot we can do to live in harmony with them. Mm-hmm. Eating, I mean, eating them, mm-hmm. I think, is a better alternative than an orientation where you want to kill them every time we see them. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. For sure. I mean, and, like, I've definitely grown broccoli and not gotten all the aphids off before. Oh, yeah. And, like, I'm fine. <laughs> also, just so everybody knows, everyone's eating insects all the time. Mm-hmm. If you ever you've ground spices, if you've ever eaten pasta, mm-hmm. if you've ever eaten grain... It's, it's likely the case mm-hmm. that there's some insect that's been incorporated into it. And for the most part, insects that are in things that are reconstituted powder, mm-hmm. they are reconstituted powder themselves. Mm-hmm. Grain weevils are made mostly from grain, right? Mm-hmm. They feed in the grain, they eat the grain, 
They're just grain. Right. They're <laughs> transformed grain. grain. Yeah, exactly. So the squeamishness is the problem. The <laughs> yeah. weevils aren't actually the problem. Right, right. No, that makes sense. That makes yeah. sense for sure. Do you have any good tips for people who are maybe like, they're like, oh, I know that insects are good and I should appreciate them, but like, ah, they freak me out. I don't like the way they move. Like, mm-hmm. what should people do to like maybe become more comfortable or to learn to appreciate insects mm-hmm. a little bit more? Well, I think the first thing is to acknowledge their own feelings mm-hmm. and look if they want help from someone. Find someone who respects uh, their own emotional integrity, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I think we, we all learn and experience new things within a certain comfort, right? Mm-hmm. And in order to grow past those limits, we need something to be emotionally salient. Mm-hmm. And we, we need the patience and compassion of other people. Mm-hmm. I find this to be an incredibly empathetic answer coming from someone who seems to have no detectable fear of insects whatsoever, especially as he picked two ticks off of me during the course of this interview. I should clarify that they were not attached to me. They were just crawling on my clothes. But still, he just picked up a tick, no problem. And yet he's not like, people should just get over their fear of insects. He's actually really nice and understanding about it. So I'd say if you want to accommodate uh, a more, a greater appreciation for insects, Mm -hmm. go to a place like the Bohar Museum, UC Davis. Mm -hmm. Go to a place like the California Academy of Sciences, right? There are a lot of places you can go, even local, local Mm -hmm. places where you can find insects. Somebody has insects. Or just Mm -hmm. call a museum, an entomologist, and say, hey, can you help me get more comfortable with insects? I guarantee that if anyone listening to this were to call an entomologist, they find out about an entomologist and they call this into contact them, however, and they say, I've been afraid of insects, but I don't want to be afraid of insects anymore. Can you help me? They will definitely help you. Yes. <laughs> if you say, hey, can you bring uh-huh. insects to me and help me get more uh-huh. excited about insects? I don't, I can't think of any entomologist that'll say no. Right. Honestly. So there are people who devote their lives to their curiosity and delight about insects. Mm-hmm. And if you would like to build that in yourself, people will help you. So, but mm-hmm. the first step, of course, is to make sure that you feel safe. Right. Because that's how you're going to build the comfortable experiences. You don't but, want to just traumatize yourself further, right? Exactly. Like, don't do it. <laughs> yeah. Don't do it. And there are yeah. a lot of insects available that you can do. Sure. Even just sitting on the ground and watching the insects move around, uh-huh. that might be okay. Yeah. Because yeah. you might notice, oh, wait a minute, they're all around me. Mm-hmm. I- I'd say this. The most harmless insect you see all the time that you're afraid of and you don't need to be is a crane fly. Mm-hmm. People call them mosquito eaters. Yeah. They think they're giant mosquitoes. Mm-hmm. They don't. The larvae live in often grass. Mm-hmm. And then in the springtime, you see them fly around. Yeah. Their legs detach when they fly in the spider webs or when you touch them and stuff like that. But the adults don't feed at all. They can't bite you. They're, they're innocuous. You can grab them in your hand and take them outside. Yeah. And they look scary because their legs are moving around. They're really big. Right. right? But I'd suggest if, if you're able to approach a crane fly and maybe take it outside, it's going to make you a lot more comfortable sure. with a lot of other insects. There's nothing that guy can do to you. Nothing. That's cool. Yep. Any myths you would like to debunk Ooh. about yeah. insects? Or, sure. Mm-hmm. Or arthropods? Sure, yeah. So here's a funny one. People often say that I heard every year people eat on average 13, 14, yeah. 15 spiders in <laughs> uh-huh, their sleep. Uh-huh. Yeah. So let's think about that for a minute. On average, people eat 14 or 15 spiders. There's a lot of spiders that are being eaten in people's <laughs> sleep. Uh, the first time I heard that, I was like reflecting on the circumstances required for that to happen. Uh-huh. Not just once, but multiple times, right? Right. So you need to be sleeping probably on your back, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe even not, but just say that you need to be sleeping with your mouth open, right? Because I don't, I don't think that people have a general sleepy reflex where if something gets in their lips, they immediately try and eat it, right? Like, I don't think, <laughs> I don't, you just turn into a frog. Yeah, I don't think that sleep. happens for people, right? So I think, I think it's got to crawl in your mouth somehow. Uh-huh. And so the the spider has to crawl over your bed for some reason, uh-huh. and then into across your face and then into your mouth and then you got to swallow it yeah right all of that has to happen and then for that to happen without you knowing about it yes without you knowing about it (laughs) and then you don't wake up and then then for that to happen 15 times a year (laughs) once more than once a month (laughs) that just seems absurd to me like all of that together so it's either that or there's one guy right and i'm assuming i'm i'm not trying to make um uh play on gender stereotypes here just this one person 
who's eating what? Okay, it's 15 times seven, eight, 85 billion spiders a year. Right? Like, nobody's eating any. <laughs> this is the average. In his sleep. They yeah. averaged it out. If this is the average, right? Or maybe not that extreme. Uh, he uh, happens to breed spiders. Yes, for that's living. right. Maybe not this that extreme. Some them. people are eating a lot in their sleep inadvertently, and nobody's eating few. I mean, like, come oh, on. Well, maybe it's really bimodal, cool. right? Who knows, right? But I think yeah. that's a myth that definitely should be. That one we can throw out. That's absurd. Also, of course, crane flies aren't going to hurt you. Right. Let's mm-hmm. do that. There are really no insects that will lay eggs in your skin. There are insects that, I mean, like bot flies and things like that happen in certain very specific places. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm not generally squeamish about insects at all, but this next part, not my favorite. So if you are squeamish about insects, I recommend skipping forward about 30 seconds and then you'll be good. Cockroaches won't like get in your ear and lay eggs there. That's mm-hmm. generally not going to happen. Uh, sometimes people get problems or cockroaches get trapped in their ear canals. Wow. Yeah, but that, that'll mostly happen in tropical, warmer right. tropical environments mm-hmm. um, where your ear is really moist and people haven't cleaned it. Mm-hmm. Or you're laying on the ground or something like that. Mm-hmm. So that's often more of an issue for people living in particular circumstances. Right. not everywhere, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. How about this? Most spider bites aren't spider bites. Oh. Something else. Huh. Yeah. People say they're spider bites, but... Spiders aren't biting people all the time. Right. That's not happening. <laughs> they're not, not just like aggressive. They're not just sitting on the couch and the spider comes up and just bites you. That doesn't yeah. happen. Yeah. Right? It doesn't make any sense. It's just like, screw you, man. Like, yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> it's not their MO. Yes. It, it's not It's not what they're doing. They're staying away from you, right? They don't want to get smushed. They're not just randomly moving around mm-hmm. inadvertently getting up on you and they bump into you and they bite you. Mm-hmm. Right? And so in that notion, or in the topic of spider bites, there are brown recruits relatives mm-hmm. in California, mm-hmm. but there are no brown recluses oh, in California. See, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So you're probably not going to find brown recluses, um, let's see, west of Kansas. Oh, wow. Yeah, probably. Okay. So say. are black widows the only ones that we need to really worry about here? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And even black widows, you don't need to worry about that much. Okay. Um, if you're immunocompromised, if you're young, you're old, you're particularly vulnerable. For most people, when you get bit by a black widow, it's probably not going to be a problem. You can also generally tell if it's a black widow's web because mm. it kind of sounds like crackling fire. They make really? really stiff web lines. Yeah, because they, they feed on cursorial insects, insects that run around and walk on the ground. Uh-huh. And so they have their web lines, right, are stiff. And if you if you try and, like, um, pull the webbing from a black widow web, you'll, you'll hear this crackling sound. Oh. Yeah, the little connections are breaking and stuff like that. That's so interesting. interesting. In World War II, I think, they used uh, black widow webbing to help with the crosshairs on bomber sites wow, sometimes. Because, because they're so stiff. Mm-hmm. Exactly, yeah, they stretched across it. But yeah, so black widows, so you're going to find recluse spiders, but you won't find any brown recluses. And also, brown recluses do not cause extensive necrotization of your leg, That extensive necrosis. That doesn't happen, right? If your leg is inflamed and it seems like it's going to die because it, it's all infected, that's not because some brown recluse bit you. That's, that might be because a spider bit you and you got a secondary infection with MRSA oh, or some okay, other kind yeah. of antibiotic-resistant bacterium, mm-hmm. right? And so spider bites can sometimes get infected, mm-hmm. right? Despite the fact that they don't happen very often, if they were to occur, right? Mm-hmm. You could get injured various mm-hmm. different ways and get infected with a an antibiotic-resistant mm-hmm. bacterium that right. will then cause your leg to look like it's going to fall off. Right. Cause extensive you got like a paper cut. And you, <laughs> yes. But people aren't freaked out about the paper cut, even though it can have the same result. That's like, yep. exactly mm-hmm. right. So yeah, a right. brown recluse spider or uh, will cause a necrotic lesion that's maybe a quarter or a half dollar in size. Mm-hmm. It's not this extensive okay. systemic All right. Well, that's good. So, yeah, that's not Thank an issue. You. Yeah, and as a person who's been around lots of brown local spiders uh-huh. when I was consulting in Kansas a few years ago. Uh, I had a lot of boxes in this garage in a barn. And I forgot that this was within the range and distribution of brown recluse spiders. So I went back a few weeks after I had stored these boxes Mm -hmm. to take things out of them, right? And there were tons of brown recluse spiders. Uh I was like, oh my gosh, right? I was so surprised. Yeah. Because, I mean, I'm not dealing with recluse. They're a recluse. They hide, right? Yeah. But they hide in barns. They hide in barns and dark Uh places and boxes. Yeah. And I had left a perfect environment for them. I basically had made pitfall traps. Yes, exactly. And I'd forgotten. I could have done things differently. I should have. Okay. Is there like uh, one or two top tips for how people can help native insects Mm. around their homes? Sure. Around their homes. Mm -hmm. Don't spray pesticides. Okay. Yep. Because those are going to just generally kill everything. Non-target effects. Yep. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great. You're likely not skilled enough 
to apply them in a way that will not cause non-target effects. Okay. And also, it's generally not the case that we collectively have been so skilled in producing mm -hmm. chemical agents that will not have non-target yeah. effects. So yeah. this isn't like, hey, everybody's dumb except for entomologists. It is, it's a challenging thing to avoid these things. Right, sure. So in certain circumstances, with the right pesticide, mm -hmm. when you're aware of what's around, you mm -hmm. can avoid that. You can mitigate non-target right. effects, but you can't really eliminate them. Right. So sure, the best sure. thing you can do is just don't spray them around. Okay. Yeah. Don't spray pesticides. Yeah. Good. Mm -hmm. A listener question. A listener mm -hmm. wanted to know if you have a favorite urban bug. Ooh. Hmm. Now, uh, this might be really um, leaning on people's willingness to empathize with the creatures they mm -hmm. loathe. Mm -hmm. But there are mosquitoes in the genus Culicida, uh -huh. which are very large, and they often fly slow. They look pretty big. Uh, they often feed in nature. They'll feed on ungulates. They'll feed on deer. They'll feed on other large animals like that. And then they'll feed on us, and we usually notice them. Mm -hmm. Smaller, more quickly moving, human-adapted or primate-adapted uh, mosquitoes are ones we don't notice, and so yeah. we don't kill. But we often notice the Culicida, and we yeah. kill them. And they fed on large megafauna in the past. Whoa. So they're a relic in a way. And I find it incredibly charming whenever I see them yeah. because they fed on giant ground sloths, which we will never see. Right. And they're still around and they're adapted to, or they, ha they in the past, you know, they fed on them, right? Yeah. They, they acquired the means by which they could feed successfully from these ground sloths. And we are very different from giant ground sloths. Right. If you're like, what is a giant ground sloth? Please do yourself a favor and Google a picture of this animal. It went extinct about 11,000 years ago, but it lived in North America. And it was basically a giant sloth. And the biggest one was 9 to 10 feet long and weighed 2,200 pounds. So, yes, very different from humans. So it brings into relief for me that these are a reminder of the taxa that were present uh -huh. in this environment before we were here. And so, you know, as much as I'm empathetic towards mosquitoes, I find it particularly useful to think about the Culicida and that mm -hmm. it's, it's challenging for them to feed on us mm -hmm. because everything that they fed on in the past is gone. It's like Tuck Everlasting. Do oh, you know yeah. Book? It's like a children's book, but this one family lives forever. And so, like, yes. everyone else dies, <laughs> right? Like, like, they have to see the world changing. And That's they're the only right. ones yes. still left around. Yeah, exactly. It's so, kind of sad. Hey, like, yeah, I mean, they're like cavemen on wings, mm -hmm. so... Yeah, that's Side note on Tuck Everlasting, one of my good friends directed a youth theater production of Tuck Everlasting, and I went into this thing thinking, I don't know, I knew she was talented, but I just didn't think that kids could act this well, and I wasn't prepared emotionally for what that show was going to do to me, so I was crying in my seat for probably 20 minutes after the show ended, I, it was very hard for me to pull myself together and walk out with dignity after everyone else had already left. Look, I'm a sensitive person. I also don't like loud noises or bright lights or crowds or scratchy clothing. It's all bad. Okay, but let's get to a listener question. This one is from, I believe it's pronounced Nayeli. Thoughts on declining native insect populations, mm -hmm. or if there are any specific families of insects that we should be aware of, like native insects Ooh. that we should be aware of. Uh, yeah, some native bees. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, there's a family Apidae, so a lot of solitary bees mm -hmm. you can find that we should be aware of. Mm -hmm. So people are worried about bees, right? One, because, hey, got to make sure you have food. Two, because... The losses of honeybees over the past 20 years is mm -hmm. something that people have talked about more. I'm glad that there's been more attention in the past decade, 15 years, to the absence of certain solitary bees or native yeah. bees. Uh, in part because it's much easier to maintain the populations of European honeybees. Right. And for the most part, we have many more bees than we had before mm -hmm. we saw bee declines. Mm -hmm. The European honeybees, in large part, are in demand for pollinating almonds, right, in February, and they're trucked across the United States, or producing honey sometimes. But there are problems with beekeeping mm -hmm. that lead to certain losses mm -hmm. in the hives in the colonies. However, the solitary bees, people aren't seeing. Yeah. They're not living in large hives. They're not contributing a lot directly to an individual's 
economic situation mm-hmm. in ways they can perceive and so they're not being right. cultivated and they are often in places that will get developed mm-hmm. right they're living in little like roadside fields right and so then those are getting tilled or they're getting destroyed in the course of putting up a, a, a housing development or something mm-hmm. like that and they get forgotten so i think that although people know about the bees it would probably be more helpful if people knew specific things about the bees then uh we got to save the bees so if we want to be effective in participating in this endeavor to care for these Mm -hmm. bees you really should know things about them Mm -hmm. you should know the context where they occur some things about their biology ways that you can help in that regard as opposed to just noting that bees are in decline sure sure do those little native bee houses work they can yeah i mean it depends Depends okay yeah does it have to be at like for the proper like kinds of bees that you have in your area? Is that sort of the yes, idea? Yes, exactly. Like, uh-huh. Yeah, like you're not going to find the same bees everywhere. Mm-hmm. So um, it can help to provide them with other means. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think if you want to care for solitary bees, especially ground nesting bees, you would invest more of your time in influencing the policymakers you're in contact mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. to care about them as well. Yeah. Let's think about it. It's, an, it's a collective endeavor, sure. right? If nobody says anything, where is there evidence that their constituency cares about this. So speak up about it. Exactly. Put it in their ear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I've also heard, like, as, you know, not so much a systemic thing, but an individual thing, maybe not cleaning up your garden too early or, like, yeah. leaving stems or things like that. Oh, yeah, around. leave debris like, for them to uh-huh. feed on. Yeah, and li- cool. I mean, yeah, I, I'd say a garden is a lush habitat mm-hmm. for lots of different native insects, mm-hmm. right? They're going to come in there and they're going to colonize it. Take the things that you need, leave the rest behind you take the fruit and leave everything behind and then deal with the other debris later, I think it'll be okay. Right. Yeah. My HOA hates me for that. Oh, oh my gosh. But I'm gosh. like, you know what, dude, just calm down. Yeah. Slow your roll. <laughs> these, these pristine prune manicured. green manicured mm-hmm. yeah. collections of plants that we have around our homes, that, yeah, I think that definitely causes some problems. Yeah, for sure. But, I mean, the insects are pretty resilient, yeah. right? They're resilient and they're, they are resourceful. So, as long as you... Do what you can to avoid lingering residues of certain things. They'll probably be okay. That's good. That's good. Last question that I ask everyone. Go ahead. What about either insects or your work Mm -hmm. still either just blows your mind or takes Mm -hmm. your breath away? Oh, wow. Okay. You know, a lot of entomologists talk about the fact that insect diversity is so... Or insect biology, right? Their habits, their behavior, their life history, life histories so variable that you can learn new things about them your whole life and always be surprised Mm -hmm. and i think that is a wonderful thing the thing that takes my breath away about entomology touches on what we discussed earlier this notion of how insight and empathy is an organic consequence of you assembling these small pieces Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so the thing i'm constantly surprised by is the fact that they haven't gotten bored of insects. Mm-hmm. I think that's an amazing thing. Mm-hmm. I think it's easy to take certain things for granted. And I think there are aspects of the pursuit of entomology that are necessarily not present when you're pursuing other creatures. Mm-hmm. Bears, wolves, certain other animals. Yeah, you can learn new things about them mm-hmm. and you can be surprised for the most part. Mm-hmm. I think it's much easier to take them for granted. Yeah, I, I don't think that there is the same degree and magnitude of variation, Mm -hmm. surprise, and also relative ignorance. Because insects are so apparently alien to us, it is very challenging for us to think that we know exactly what they're like. Mm -hmm. And although we take them for granted sometimes, think of them just as automatons, I I find that when you are deliberate about being curious about them, you experience this perpetual interest in what's going on with them that can lead to a lot of curiosity and empathy for other people or other circumstances. Mm-hmm. And I'm always really grateful for that. That's very cool. Mm-hmm. All right, Ralph, thank you. You're welcome. It's been so good chatting Yeah, it's with been you. a great yeah, pleasure. I really so enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, thanks for doing this. Mm-hmm. Anytime. Hanging out with Ralph, poking around in the water and talking to insects was just an absolute joy. I want to do it again, but with waders or water shoes so I can go out into the water and see more bugs. Make sure to check out my Instagram in the next few days because I'm going to be posting a video of Ralph demonstrating how to use an insect net. So that's at Golden State Naturalist on Instagram. Something interesting from my 
my week is that I was gone for almost the entire thing. We took our kids on their very first Disneyland trip, and then we went up to Sequoia National Park, which is amazing, by the way, and a very kind listener recommended Tacopa Falls, which was the perfect hike to do with a three-year-old and four-year-old. So thanks, Dave. We've only been back for two full days from that trip, and I've been working on this episode pretty much nonstop both days. It's the fastest I've ever turned an episode around, and I really hope I'm coherent at this point because it's 1248 in the morning as I say this, and the episode releases in roughly three hours. The last thing is just a quick reminder that this is episode nine out of 12 in season one, so just three more episodes before the season break. And did you like the episode? If you did, don't forget to go tell those friends you thought about at the beginning of the episode. Okay, thanks so much for joining me and for sticking around to the very end of the episode. I'll see you next time on Golden State Naturalist. Bye! The song is called I Don't Know by Grapes, and you can find the link to that as well as the Creative Commons license in the show notes.